0: Welcome to News from the BBC World Service. Coming to you live from London, I'm Julian Marshall. Today, France has a new president of the Republic, its youngest ever, as the centrist Emmanuel Macron takes over from socialist François Hollande. We'll the worldwide cyber attacks, which began on Friday and not yet over. Uh, we'll be talking to Europol's cybercrime expert and is banning smoking in prisons, a recipe for unrest. We'll... Uh, we're discussing that in about 40 minutes. So Emmanuel Macron has assumed office as French president in a sumptuous ceremony at the Elysee Palace after his election victory on May the 7th. A military band played as Mr. Macron arrived at the palace, where he first held an hour-long closed-door meeting with outgoing President François Hollande, during which he was handed the codes to France's nuclear arsenal. And as he left the building for the last time, Mr Londe was greeted with warm applause. <clears throat> After being proclaimed president by the head of the Constitutional Court, the 39-year-old Emmanuel Macron said that under his leadership, France would play a central role on the world stage.
1: The world and Europe today, more than ever, need France. They need a strong France, sure of its own destiny. They need a France which raises high the voice of liberty and solidarity. They need a France which knows how to invent the future.
0: President Macron also said he would push for a reformed European Union. The Europe that we need
1: will be remoulded, relaunched, because it protects us and allows us in the world to create something new.
0: Well, let's go live to Paris now and speak to Sophie Pedera, the economist who was at the inauguration uh, ceremony at the Elysee uh, Palace. And tell me about that um, ceremony. Was it pretty standard?
2: Well, I mean, there's no such thing as a standard ceremony. They've only had eight, eight presidents under the Fifth Republic, so these all feel rather unique and, uh, and quite special. And it's um, it was it's an in- interesting atmosphere because it's quite an intimate surroundings. It takes place in the salle des fêtes, which is where the presidency would hold a sort of banquet, state banquets, that sort of thing. Um, and it's not a huge room. Uh, there must have been about four, four or five hundred people there, a mix of uh, former prime ministers, uh, such as. Uh, Lionel Jospin, uh, former socialist prime minister, but also um, the team from En Marche, you know Emmanuel Macron's um, group of very young advisers who were all there. His family, his, um, uh, sister, his, his wife's family as well, his mother and father. So it was a, it was quite an intimate ceremony, a solemn occasion. Doesn't take very long time. But I think it was, uh, you know, um, a very moving moment for everybody there who had supported his campaign team members who supported him right the way through.
0: And then a very upbeat inaugural speech from President Macron.
2: Yes, I mean he's um, you know that is his sort of hallmark, being ap- upbeat. He wants to try and make the French. The French are often uh, classified as one of the most pessimistic countries on on earth when you look at the uh, polls, and he's I think he really wants to try and restore a sense of of, of positive thinking and, a, and an upbeat kind of atmosphere in France because it's a country that have got a lot of things that does do that are going for it, but somehow people don't really believe in themselves. There's been, it's been a country that's been hit a lot by terrorist attacks, as you know, over the last two years and um, economically has been struggling, unemployment is very high and I think what, what he's really trying to do is send a message to, to the French to say, you know, believe in yourselves again, believe in what, what you can achieve and what you can do and as individuals and as a nation.
0: President Macron made reference in his speech to the huge task that lies ahead and uh, you wrote a book, Sophie, called The French Denial, The Last Spoiler children of Europe? Does President Macron have what it takes to wean the French off what you refer to as their extravagant welfare state?
2: Well, I think he's one of the few people to have thought very hard about this and in the context of what sort of a welfare state can a european a rich european country um, but nonetheless one that is facing difficulties on the economic front what kind of welfare state can it afford but also what kind of welfare state is is state is adapted to the new world of work where people won't necessarily be salaried employees where uh, jobs that are going to be created that we don't even know anything about and i think that he's really trying to think about how to adapt that so he does that. he's done the thinking He's worked out what it needs to do and I think that the real question is whether he can do it. We need to wait for legislative elections in June um, to see if he can get a majority with which to govern and after that whether he can start pushing things forward. But I think he really understands what's needed and uh, at the moment he looks like the president who looks in the best position to try and do something about that that we've had for a very long time.
0: Sophie, many thanks. That was uh, Sophie Pedro, of The Economist speaking there live from Paris. So what are... President Macron's prospects for success, given that the centrist politician's domestic agenda will require parliamentary approval, and his party, La République En Marche, has no deputies in the National Assembly and in next month's elections is running a slate of candidates, half of whom have never been politicians. I'm joined now from Paris by Bruno Bernat, a member of the centre-right party Les Républicains. And uh, Mr Bernard do you think Emmanuel Macron's party can win an outright parliamentary majority?
3: I think he can. Uh I'm not sure he will. The <laughs> thing is that it will um depend a lot on who he chooses as prime minister on Monday and uh and the and the government that follows. Uh if he chooses a center-right politician as it it is likely uh, to, to happen, it could send a signal to the centre-right electorate who voted for François Fillon uh, in the presidential elections, and this could uh, help him um, win a, a majority uh, with some uh, Republican MPs, not switching sides, but uh, adding La République en Marche as one of their label uh, when they run for their
1: constituency.
0: So you see him perhaps. Uh... Monsieur Macron, ruling with a, w- with an informal coalition. Is that what you're saying?
3: Um, yes, I think that's um, because uh, that, that's what I'm saying, because in, in France, there's either a... Well, we've never heard... We've never had a coalition. We've had cohabitation, which means that the president and the prime minister and the, the parliamentary majority are from different sides. Here, you could have... A, as you said, a non-official, non-formal, because it won't be a, a, an agreement, a formal agreement between Emmanuel Macron and Les Républicains, but Emmanuel Macron, having uh, won most of the support from the, the, the socialist, the reformist socialist party, uh, will, will now try to move towards Les Républicains in order to get that majority he, he desperately needs to
0: govern. You were speaking about um, the appointment of a prime minister that might persuade uh, some members of the Républicains to swing behind mm-hmm. uh, Mr Macron. Um, someone perhaps like Edouard Philippe, uh, the mayor of Le Havre in Western France?
3: Of course, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you've, you've been reading uh, the latest news from Paris. <laughs> uh, yeah, Edouard Philippe, he's a, a young MP, uh, a young mayor as well, uh, one of the um, fresh faces of French politics, he backed Alain Juppé during the uh, central-right primary. So he would definitely be a very good choice, a very bold one, because uh, he's not a very experienced politician, uh, but uh, he could make a, a hell of a duo with Emmanuel Macron uh, at the, the, the head of France.
0: That having been said, uh, what would you say were the greatest points of tension between President Macron's legislative agenda and uh, the Republican?
3: Uh, I think it won't have to do with the economy uh, because I think Macron and Les Republican do see eye to eye. There's also, um, I, I think we will have to do a lot with immigration security and whether Macron um, has enough strength uh, to uh, move towards uh, what Les Republican expects. That means um, Hiring more policemen, uh, uh, spending at least 2% of of France's GDP on defence and that kind of thing. Uh, Also, maybe a a cap on immigration. Uh, We'll see about that.
0: Mr Benard, many thanks. Bruno Benard, member of the centre-right party Les Républicains. And uh, let's get an update now on those cyber attacks that began to sweep around the world on Friday. According to the EU's law enforcement agency, Europol, there are now 200,000 victims in 150 countries. Computer systems have been targeted by malware, blocking access and demanding ransom payments to unlock them. And there are fears that those figures could rise as people return to work on Monday and uh, turn on their computers again after the weekend. Stephen Wilson is head of Europol's European Cybercrime Centre, he's on the line now. And the increase in figures from yesterday, is that just new organisations reporting or is the uh, virus spreading?
4: I think it's a combination of both. We're seeing the virus continues to spread and very much people are becoming crucially aware of what's going on, so we've seen more reports and more understanding of what's happening.
0: We spoke yesterday to the young researcher who appears to have stopped uh, or at least slowed the original malware from spreading. But he said that he expects new malware to appear on Monday when people uh, return to work. Is that your apprehension as well?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I would fully agree with that. And it's not so much new malware, it's existing forms of ransomware we see, but being deployed, utilising some of the vulnerabilities that have allowed WanaCrypt to actually be so effective.
0: So what's your advice, therefore, to users as they prepare to switch on their computers on Monday?
4: Yeah, very much down to the ICT department understanding what the threat is. If they are aware that their system has not been patched, implement that patch immediately. That becomes the key factor to stop the spread of the virus throughout their systems. If that's done, that can actually give them the chance to recover and to mitigate any threat that's ongoing. There's considerable advice available online from most of the main security vendors detailing exactly what to do.
0: Has anybody um, paid out and got their files back? Um, is that the sort of thing that would be necessarily be reported to you? Uh,
4: not at this point at Europol. Again, we're in the middle of a live investigation. I won't go into specifics into what's happening just now, but you know, it's something that we will keep a close attention upon.
0: So what can you say about that live investigation Are or do you have leads?
4: Again, I, I would not be saying anything like Europol's role is we are, are at the centre. We are coordinating intelligence coming from all the European partners, coming from industry and also globally to see what's there, to put every single part together to see if we can develop leads. That's the key role that Europol and the EC3 play in this.
0: What sort of a crime is this? Uh, do you describe it as extortion?
4: Yeah, it's I mean it's it's the the modern equivalent of an old crime, it's extortion and just moving into the 21st century as we see with many forms of criminality now being adopted on the internet.
0: I mean the scale of this um, these latest attacks is unprecedented, but uh, these ransomware attacks are in fact not new.
4: No, absolutely. We highlighted in last year's threat assessment that Europol that ransomware was the number one problem facing uh, companies and individuals across Europe. This has just taken it to the next level.
0: Mr Wilson, many thanks. Stephen Wilson, head of Europol's uh, European Cybercrime Centre. He was speaking there from The Hague in the Netherlands. For any visitor to Thailand, one of the greatest pleasures is sampling the food sold from street stalls, anything from delicious Thai sweets, to a steaming plate of pad thai cooked in seconds in a blazing hot wok. Street food is a way of life for millions of Thais as well, especially hard-pressed city workers with little time or space to cook at home. So an announcement last month that street food vendors would be removed from the capital, Bangkok, was met with a predictable uproar. The city government has since promised that the vendors will be allowed to operate in a few designated areas, provided they meet strict hygiene standards. But its plans have left many ties and foreigners fearful that the drive for order and modernity will rob the city of an essential part of its character. Jonathan Head reports.
5: This noisy street is known as Yawarat Road. It runs right through the heart of Bangkok's old Chinatown. And it is one of the very best places among many in the city where you can eat street food. All around me are stalls selling, cooking, an array of wonderfully appetizing snacks and dishes. Street food is one of the city's great tourist attractions. But it is now threatened by the attempts of the city government to regulate it, to get it off some of the streets, and to make it more hygienic. And with me here on Yawarat Road today is Chawadi Nolkhe, who has catalogued all of the different types of street food in Thailand on her blog, Bangkok Glutton.
6: Chinatown is actually the birthplace of Thai street food. The Chinese came in the 1800s and they started selling noodles along the canals. And that became street food as we know it today. And
5: they cook very fast and very hot in these yes, stoves. Yes, you know, we
6: didn't have frying pans before the Chinese came. So they not only revolutionized the ingredients we use, but also the techniques in which we cook them. All right,
5: let's go and try some of the dishes here. <laughs> so, Chow, we've, we've got a classic street stall here. What kind of things are they cooking?
6: You're going to have fried noodles, fried rice. Anything that will stand great
5: seafood. Uh, at least all okay. the ingredients are there, just in front of us, aren't they? Yes.
6: And he's got his workstation perfectly set out.
5: And it's all cooked very fast and yes. very hot, isn't it?
6: Blazing hot wok, so important.
5: He's going to stop going in. Whoa. Whoa! Look at that heat.
6: Ultimately, what we're fighting about is our vision of future Bangkok, right? right I'm so and their idea of progress is something that is controlled and queen. They're going against the grain of the city and, and I feel like the culture
7: too.
6: As much as we, you know, complain about the clutter and the chaos, this is what defines us. This street food is Thai culture.
5: So is the city government here really set on pushing all this street food out of sight off the pavements? Well, Let's go and talk to one Suwandi. He chairs a board of advisors to the city governor.
4: Let me reconfirm on behalf of the city of Bangkok that the street food will be with Bangkok life on the condition that will not be the obstruction to any pedestrian and that the vendor observe the sanitary rules for the sake of the public health. We allow them to be in certain areas on the very strict condition. One thing
5: that people have said to me is, the slightly informal way in which Bangkok has developed, the informal way businesses operate, is part of its character. And that if you try too much to impose order and cleanliness, that you might end up destroying the very thing that makes Bangkok special.
4: Would you care just only for the vendors, and you shut your ears or shut your eye to all the complaints from another segment of the public? No, no, the BMA couldn't do so. I think it's not fair.
5: Well, let's have something sweet now. And what kind of sweets can you get on the street?
6: You can get just about anything that ties eat for desserts.
0: That report from Jonathan Head in Bangkok. (music) This is News from the BBC in London. Portugal has been celebrating its first-ever victory at the Eurovision Song Contest with an entry stripped of the elaborate choreography and heavy dance tempo favoured by most contestants. Salvador Sobral gave an intimate rendering of the melancholic Amar pelos dois" for the both of us and won top marks not just from the televoters but also the other country's professional juries. Sabal was discovered while competing in Portugal's version of American Idol in 2009, but performed last night in Kiev, despite suffering from a heart condition. Nuno Duarte represented Portugal at the Eurovision Song Contest in 2011, and I spoke to him about last night's win.
8: I was very happy. I was very happy with the, with the victory last night at the Eurovision Song Contest. After all these year's decades... That Portugal was was a little bit the uh, the ugly duck of the of the contest. We never had won. Our results had been a, a sixth place in the 90s, and this year this year we we, we bring the cup to Portugal. And next year, all Inns and all fans around the world are welcome here in our beautiful country. <laughs>
0: But the choice of song, um, quite a surprise to win the Eurovision Song Contest, was it not?
8: Bet. And, and it, that has to do with a change of policy here. And they made a, a new team to prepare the festival and brought composers and musicians established in Portugal so that the, the quality of the song could go higher. And even here, Salvador's song was like the UFO of all the choices. But soon after the first semi final, he really caught the people's heart and attention, and he became the favorite, like in, in a surprise way and need one against all odds here and that made people start to have hope that what happened here in Portugal could happen in the Eurovision and it did and it was quite a night Meu bem,
6: ouve as
0: I mean, did, did it surprise you that, that such an unlikely song could win a contest which is all about uh, razzmatazz?
8: Actually, it didn't surprise me. I think it, it, it surprised a lot of people. It, it didn't surprise me because uh, I was Portuguese entry in 2011 and my number was a, a comedy act and uh, we won here in Portugal because we were very well known in, in the comedy part of the, of the business. And when I was in the Eurovision Song Contest, I noticed that a lot of, of the choice of the winner, it's an emotional choice. I think the, the Eurovision fans are very emotional people and it, they really attach to, to something bigger than music. And I'm not saying that, that uh, Salvador's song it's not a good song. I think it was the best song. But it was really a UFO song in the middle of all the pop thing that goes around in the Eurovision. But it all made sense the sweetness of the, the lyrics, the jazz arrangements of the song and the Salvador's character he created to interpret this song it all made sense and it really caught the heart of the people and I think that was the secret
1: não
0: and do you think many of those who voted for him were aware of his backstory? I mean he's virtually unknown uh in yeah. the wider Europe. This is a man who is is not well uh reportedly yeah. waiting for a heart transplant. Do you think that sort of fed into uh people's appreciation of his act?
8: maybe. I don't think so that' so much, especially the heart condition. I, I don't think that was the really the, the most important thing. I think the, the most important thing was the really the sweetness of the song, the the intimacy of the song, and the way Salvador performed it. so so well performed and so well sung and so so relaxed and so maybe a little bit blase. and uh, I think that was what really made them vote. For, for Portugal
0: this year. Nuno Duarte uh, celebrating, like his Portuguese compatriots, the success last night at the Eurovision Song Contest of Amar Pelos Dois. You're listening to a podcast edition of News Hour, available twice each day, straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then why not take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service? Can I recommend People Fixing the World? An antidote to much of the doom and gloom we read and hear in the news, the team explores clever or big ideas, trying to solve the problems of the world and investigates whether they actually work. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Julian Marshall. This is NewsHour. North Korea has fired yet another ballistic missile in defiance of calls to rein in its missile programme and there's been widespread condemnation. The United States, which has already deployed warships off the Korean Peninsula, says North Korea has been a flagrant menace for far too long. Uh, The newly elected South Korean president, who favours a dialogue with the North, has called the launch a reckless provocation, while Japan has spoken of a grave threat to its territory. I've been uh, speaking about this new missile test with the BBC's Steve Evans in Seoul. What more do we know about it?
9: We know that it was a success, or it seems to have been a success, certainly more successful than the previous two last month, which were duds. They exploded shortly after launch. This missile, according to people who watch these things in the military in Japan and South Korea and the US, travelled something like 700 kilometres, about 400 miles, and according to the Japanese Defence Ministry, it reached an altitude of 2,000 kilometres. And that means that its range, were it reliable, that would make it in the longer range of medium. Not quite an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of reaching the west coast of the U.S., but certainly one capable of reaching the big U.S. bases in Guam, for example. So if it's as successful as it seems to be, it seems to be a big step forward in their technology.
0: And what are we to make of the timing? After all, the Trump administration has uh, recently reached out to Pyongyang, um, as has the newly elected South Korean president.
9: You never quite know with North Korea about the timing. There's an assumption, for example, that they let these things off uh, on big anniversaries, and actually they don't seem to. It may be that the scientists and the generals are determining the, the timing. If they need to test a change in technology, maybe they they do the test. Or if the military want to teach people how to use the thing, maybe they launch one. But what may be significant is that there's been a gap of about a month. And if you're a cynic or a realist or a sceptic, you'd say that they've held off while the South Korean election took place. The winner of the South Korean election came to power with a very different stance from his predecessor. His predecessor, her position was certainly no dialogue with Pyongyang, cut off all ties, give them virtually nothing which could be used as money or food virtually that could finance the nuclear programme, close off the industrial cooperation, for example. The new man in, in the Blue House here wants dialogue. He's now in a difficult position because he came in promising or threatening, depending on your point of view, a softer line on Pyongyang, and now there's a missile test. So President Moon reacted by saying, quote, even if dialogue is possible, we should show North Korea that it's possible only in case of North Korea changing its attitude. So already, and he's been in office less than a week, there's a toughening of his attitude there. And you've had President Trump obviously saying prospect of a serious war, big, big stick being wielded, but also floating negotiations. He, again, is reacting with dismay. The statement from the White House, in, a, in what seems like an odd wording, actually, the statement from the White House, with the missile impacting so close to the Russian soil, in, flat, in fact closer to Russia than to Japan, the President cannot imagine that Russia is pleased. And that seems to be a bold attempt to get Russia on board to be tough. So, the pause may be significant, but not the particular timing of this moment.
0: That was the BBC's Steve Evans speaking from the South Korean capital, Seoul. The World Health Organization has dispatched a team to a remote region of the Democratic Republic of Congo where there's been an outbreak of Ebola. So far, there have been 11 suspected cases and three deaths. It's the eighth outbreak of the disease in the DRC since the Ebola virus was first identified there in 1976. On the line from Geneva now, I have the WHO's Executive uh, Director for Emergencies, um, Dr. Peter Salama. And what more can you tell us about that outbreak in the DRC?
1: Yeah, well, we were notified on the 11th of May by the government of the DRC that they had actually confirmed in the laboratory The first case of Ebola virus disease. Uh, This has been the result of samples taken from a cluster of people with an unexplained illness, some of whom had hemorrhagic or bleeding symptoms. And that's from a very remote part of the country called uh, Bas Uele, which is around 1400 kilometres from Kinshasa. And indeed, there have been now 11 suspected cases and three deaths. Uh, We believe that the outbreak began in in late April. And uh, as you mentioned, one of the the complications here is uh, it's very logistically difficult to get to this area. It's uh, it's not uh, accessible by vehicles, so it's a two- or three-day motorbike ride to, to get there. So uh, the team is arriving today, a combined team of the government and of WHO, to assess the extent of the outbreak and work out what, what we should do next.
0: And the DRC health authorities are very experienced, are they not, in containing such outbreaks?
1: They are. There's an enormous amount of expertise and experience in the Democratic Republic of Congo and a very good track record of containing these kinds of outbreaks. Uh, really using best practice in, in management of Ebola from assessing the situation to ensuring tracing of contacts to isolating cases to managing and caring for, for people with the disease and to really engaging communities well on how to conduct safe burials, ensuring that the communities are very much on board. And really we aim to be supporting them to implement exactly that kind of program over the coming weeks.
0: Now obviously whenever there's a, an outbreak of Ebola nowadays in Africa, Memories go back to uh, West Africa and the outbreak there that peaked in uh, 2014 claimed the lives of, what, more than 11,000 uh, people. Is there any kind of connection?
1: Well, there's no kind of connection other than it is it is Ebola virus and uh, the strain is the Zaire strain of, of this virus. So it is the same disease in a sense. Uh, there's no connection with the previous outbreak, uh, and what really we can say is we've learnt a lot as an international community from that outbreak. WHO itself has established a new emergency program, and one of the things we aim to do is be very quick in supporting uh, local governments and local partners, such as the NGOs, on the ground, which in this case is Alima, to really respond quickly before the outbreaks get out of control. And that's what uh, our program at WHO is designed to do, and that's what we're in the process of doing today.
0: Dr. Salama, many thanks. That was Dr. Peter Salama, the WHO's Executive Director for Emergencies. <music> UK's general election is just a few weeks away. Between now and June the 8th, there are bound to be some heated arguments in homes around the country. Often young are pitched against older voters over Brexit, the cost of pensions, uh, tuition, fees at university. To explore the generational divide, the BBC's Becky Milligan will be talking to one family, the Groves live near Dudley in the English Midlands and their cousins, the Stevens, live nearby. Unlike Sam families who vote the same way, this family doesn't. Here's Becky's first report.
10: Brilliant! Thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been at work all day. Tina Grove picks me up from the station. We're off to a pub in Dudley near the zoo. It's quite nice round here. It, it's not too bad. Yeah. Tina's children, Haley and Imogen, are meeting us there. Edge. Yes. No, I'm absolutely fine. I can use my feet. Oh, he's Katie? Hello. Her partner Danny will be working until eight, so he can't make it. But her nephew James, the pub's landlord, and his mother Teresa, will be there as well.
11: So
0: when
10: I first asked Tina who she might be voting for, she said Labour. But then later, she was less sure. She hasn't made up her mind. This is our election family. The only thing I'm sure of is that there'll be a few spats before Election Day.
12: My name is Imogen
10: Groves, yes. and I'm 18. So this is your first general election that you're voting in? Yeah, here? that's right.
12: When I really became political was during the EU referendum. Since then, I've just kind of been proper indulged in politics. I want to go on and do a politics degree.
10: Do you want to be a politician? Um, well, yeah, preferably. How how do you vote?
12: Uh, I'm a member of the
10: Labour Party. Tina, you're... Imogen's mother. My I'm mum. Yeah, your mum. I'm keeping but my options open. You're keeping your yeah. options open. You voted
7: Brexit, didn't you? I did. Did yeah. you discuss it? She a lot? said I had no right voting Brexit on her <laughs> behalf because <laughs> it, was have, I it was going to affect her generation. I didn't say you have no right. I tried to explain to Imogen that I was pre-European market. It was when it was the Common Market, and it's turned into something completely different.
10: Who have you voted for in the past? Have you stuck to one party? I haven't stuck to one oh, party, no. no. Where does it range over? It's the the main three parties. So we're talking Labour, Liberal Democrat, Conservative, UKIP? I have, Dudley, totally I've got a big UKIP
7: um, party, haven't I? And I have stopped in the street because they are out and about, yeah. in all fairness to them. Active, they're yeah, very active, active members, Yeah. 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 Um, have you voted for them? I voted for them in a local election. <laughs>
12: Embarrassed. <laughs> Do you argue a bit amongst yourselves, you know, about politics? In our household, it's more of me and my dad. Most of the time when we debate, it's about immigration. He doesn't think immigration is a bad thing, but I think one of the main reasons he it's voted Leave... skills
7: him. You don't mind yeah. immigration. We all migrate, but it's the skills. Everybody tarnishes immigration with... He, um, mm. Yeah, but it, it, it's not that. It's it, it's like I said to Imogen, knowledge. When she argues with me, I'll say, look, knowledge comes with age.
12: No, I don't want to sound rude, but when there's a, a person who's older, but they, they left school at 15 mm. and they, they look at you and think that you're dirt, even though you could have a degree, they'll think, oh, you're, you're, you're like 21. Don't try and argue with me because I'm...
8: My name's James Stevens. Uh, I'm Imogen's cousin. I don't know what I'm going to do. To be honest, I think they don't know how to get out of Europe now. Effectively, hard Brexit, soft Brexit. Mm, yeah. What do we know? What any of these terms mean, or is it just hyperbole? Are these just sound bites and clichés that they're using? So I think what they've done is go, all right, well, we'll get you focused on an election for the next three months while we figure out what is going on around this table.
10: So will it influence what you do I think it Well, I don't think
8: I'm going to bother. I don't think they've got sod all to do with actually what's happening at the coal face, really, in terms of trade, in terms of negotiating deals, in terms of what's happening with the economy. Certainly we can talk about disability, the unemployed, the welfare cuts, teaching crisis four days a week, mm. parents buying books... Mm. But who's got the best legs on the front cover of the Daily Mail? Do you know what I mean? Give me a break. I think it's I think it's political iconography at it's worth.
7: Theresa Stevens, Imogen's auntie. And voted Tory all my life until the second term of Mrs. Thatcher and then I never voted Tory after that. I have been a member of the Labour Party in my time.
10: What are you gonna do this
7: this time? Well, in fairness I shall still vote Labour. Well, I'm disappointed in the Labour Party, however, because I, I think they should be sweeping the board, frankly.
10: And what did you do in the referendum?
7: I voted to stay, to remain. I think politics at the minute
12: has gone mad, which is why I think that now is actually the best time to be into politics.
7: I call Imogen's generation Jeremy Corbyn's babies because he, he does appeal to the younger generation.
12: Mm-hmm. Oh, he's so passionate when he speaks. It's I love
10: it. Oh, it's great. <laughs> Imogen says it's her cousin, a long-distance truck driver, who she really disagrees with. And we can hear how that sounds next Sunday.
0: Becky Milligan reporting, and uh, you'll hear more from Imogen and her family in the coming weeks. And we stay in Britain, and the government is moving towards a smoking ban in prisons, despite warnings that it could lead to violence and unrest. And When a nationwide ban on smoking in public places and workplaces was introduced in 2007. Uh, prisons were at first exempted, but a couple of years ago the government changed its mind and although there's been no public announcement, a leaked memo from the Ministry of Justice warns all prisoners to start preparing for a complete smoking ban by the end of August. To discuss the pros and cons, I've been speaking to Ian MacLennan-Murray, who used to be a prison governor, and first of all to Alex Cavendish, writer, commentator and himself a former convict.
13: If you look at the figures, uh, an estimated 80% of adult prisoners are regular smokers. And, of course, tobacco forms a very important part of the prison uh, culture because it's used as an unofficial currency because cash is officially forbidden within prison walls. And so uh, prisoners use tobacco and and other goods from the canteen to trade, to buy services and uh, to pay debts with.
0: So prisoners would be very resistant to a ban on smoking in prisons?
13: Well, I I think the majority would be. Clearly, there is a a minority who are non-smokers, and I include myself there. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. But, um, you know, it is very much part of the prison culture. It's the only legal stimulant that most prisoners can get their hands on. And... uh, I certainly think it would involve quite a big cultural change as well as all the struggles of of trying to give up smoking for many who've who've smoked for years.
0: Mr McLennan-Murray, the only official statement we've had from the Ministry of Justice is that any prison will only become smoke-free once it is safe to do so. So resistance has to be overcome.
14: Yes, I mean, the only way you can introduce this, which, uh, as Alex says, is, is a big step for the prison service, and, of course, it's being introduced at a time when the prison service is probably at its lowest ebb with all the problems that, uh, that we've had in prisons over the last uh, couple of years or so. But the only way you can do it is to bring the prisoners with you, to, to do it with their consent. And so governors are thinking of a variety of ways to encourage and persuade prisoners to switch from conventional tobacco, perhaps to e-cigarettes, which will be allowed in prisons, and move the majority of people over to e-cigarettes before they actually, you know, set the date and say, OK, from this date, there's no more tobacco in this jail.
0: Alex Cavendish, would prisoners be amenable to that?
13: I, I think many would. Um, my concern is that this seems to be something which, although it's, it's been in the pipeline for, for many years... It seems that it's been left until we've got a crisis within the prison system, um, shortages of staff, overcrowding, insufficient resources. And my concern is this is really not the right time to be introducing something which could involve so much resistance from prisoners and so much upheaval within the system. So, although in principle I think giving up smoking is a great idea, I would question the wisdom of introducing it at this particular time of the the prison crisis.
0: To be brutal, though, why should the prison population be exempted from the kind of strictures that now exist amongst the non-prison population, that is to say, a smoking uh, ban in public places here in the UK?
13: Well, I think the argument would be that, for better or worse, a prison cell is somebody's home. It's where people live often for a number of years. And the analogy I would draw is with the exemption in the Health Act that brought in the smoking ban for hotels to be allowed, should they so wish, to offer guests smoking rooms. And staff in those hotels have to deal with that. And I think that most people, if they were, even if they're not enthusiasts for smokers, if they were told suddenly that you cannot smoke in your own home, I think people would be quite rightly outraged. And of course, in prison, there have to be restrictions. Uh, alcohol has been banned for years. But uh, I think having allowed smoking to take place in prison for decades, it really does involve, uh, as Ian was quite rightly pointing out, It's a process and it it will take time, it needs to be phased in. And my concern at the moment is that the information that, that I'm receiving from within the prison system is that deadlines are being set already And they're very short deadlines, maybe a matter of uh, a few months. And I think that that potentially could lead to uh, quite serious unrest.
0: So you're saying that the prisoners should set the deadline, if you like. They are the ones who should decide when it is appropriate to introduce a smoking ban.
13: No, I think, I think clearly prison management have to take policy decisions, but I think those have to be realistic policy decisions. And, uh, you know, as we've seen at the moment, uh, prisons ban things like so-called legal highs, which are now illegal in prisons, and yet they cannot staunch the flow of those substances at the moment. Most reports say that prisons are awash with these illegal substances. And so I think adding tobacco to that ban at the moment is really probably not not a very sensible uh, way forward.
14: In terms of, you know, trying to set a deadline, I think that it would be an absolutely ridiculous thing to do, to say, this is the date, come hell or high water. I think that once you've moved enough of your population over to either e Uh, cigarettes or they've given up smoking completely, once you have a significant proportion of the population in that position, then it is much easier to say, okay, in three weeks' time now, we're introducing the ban. And for those small minority of prisoners that have just blatantly refused to give up or switch to an alternative, then that would have to be managed. But providing it's only a very small percentage of the population, you could manage it. But if it's a large percentage of the population, you won't. So it has to be done with the consent of prisoners. Our prisons run with the cooperation of prisoners, and anything we do always has to be based on that
0: that was him mclennan murray a former prison governor here in the uk before him you heard from alex cavendish former convict now a writer and commentator time magazine has called it best album of the 20th century reggae star bob marley's exodus <laughs> Exodus uh, was recorded 40 years ago this June. To mark the date, Bob's son Ziggy, Marley, has revisited the original recording sessions and uh, reworked and put his own spin on some of the tracks for an album called Exodus 40. Speaking to me from Los Angeles, Ziggy told me what he'd learned uh, listening back to the decades old studio recordings. <laughs>
11: What I've discovered is that the musicians and my father, um, they were very adventurous. They were very taking risk with what we know as reggae music. Even, I think, to some um, critics who believe that reggae should be this or reggae should be that, they were pretty revolutionary. They were just free, adventurous, explorative um, musicians who created music true to how they felt instead of according to a certain genre or an idea of what a genre was.
6: That's
11: what I found while um, mixing the album is that there is so many different characters and characteristics within this record that I didn't hear on the original record or did I expect it but there is all type of funky crazy stuff mm-hmm. going on.
0: <laughs> so I mean what what's you what's new in your reworking of the title track Exodus in in your album.
11: One of the main philosophies was to bring Bob's voice more out front, into the front, into the forefront, um, and make it be the dominant thing um, musically speaking. Also, um, with Bob's vocals, there were many different takes and vocal expressions that I found, also that I that I used. Um, try to bring out some more of that freedom um, that probably was not brought out in, the, in 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 the first iteration of the album.
0: And and the same again with One Love.
11: Mm, the same thing with One Love. I mean, he sings different lyrics, um, verses in One Love, and different um, notes sometimes. And he, um, at the end, of, actually, at the end of One Love, he said something that I think about all the time. Like, why is it so hard for us to get together? But that didn't make the original um, record. So I was like, yeah, that's what that's the same time thing. Let me put that in a record. Why is it so hard? For us to get
1: together.
0: Everybody knows Exodus, the title track. Um, a lot of people know the lyrics, but not. Everybody knows what's what's it about. I mean, the, mm. this was recorded, wasn't it, shortly after that failed assassination attempt on on your father.
1: Mm-hmm.
11: Exodus is a kind of affirmation of his willingness to continue going on and willingness to take more chances in his life. I think he just felt like nothing nothing is going to stop me from doing what I want, what I what I'm here to do. And it's a it's a spiritual mission, it's a, it's a it's a humanitarian mission and it's a movement and no matter what happens we're gonna get through it, you know.
6: We know where we We know where we from.
1: In we're going to
6: a
0: Do you feel very much today that you are are the son of Bob Marley?
11: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I am I am the son. I am also the brother of Bob. You know we are also a brother cuz I'm an, I'm I'm much older than he was now. So I'm, I'm like his big brother now actually. I'm taking care of him. Now. <laughs> yeah. So, I feel I feel a more kinship in the in the brother sense, um in the brotherhood sense. I feel a very strong spiritual connection
0: um to my father. And I was speaking there to uh, Ziggy Marley, Bob's son, and that brings to an end this edition of News Out. From me, Julian Marshall, and the rest of the team in London, goodbye. Let's uh, end with more from Bob Marley's 1977 album, Exodus, Natural Mystic.
2: News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit BBC.com/slash podcasts.